What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Lauren Spiro. Lauren is a longtime psychiatric survivor activist. She's diagnosed with chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia at age 17. She has a master's degree in clinical community psychology and 25 years experience working in community mental health agencies. Today, she is the co-director of Emotional CPR. She's the author of the recent book, Living for Two, A Daughter's Journey from Grief and Madness to Forgiveness and Peace. So welcome to Madness Radio, Lauren Spiro. Oh, thank you, Will, for inviting me on the show. It's great to have you on the show, Lauren, and congratulations on your new wonderful book, Living for Two. You are an inspiration. Your work as a psychiatric survivor activist on a national and international level has made a huge impact on improving people's lives. So I want to congratulate you on the work that you have done and congratulate you on your new book. Thank you so much, Will. And the book is really an autobiographical memoir of your own experiences with madness and personal tragedy and and your life. Is that right? It's very much uh, my story. In fact, I I feel so vulnerable and naked. You know, this is my first uh, interview about the book, and it just reminds me of, I think, the first year of my life. So (laughs) thank you for the opportunity to remember my infancy. Well, let's see. How did you come to write the book? I know you've had a long history both as a therapist and an administrator, but also as a patient in the mental health system, and now as an advocate and a human rights activist. How did you get involved with mental health in in general? The most defining moment of my life happened when I was 14, and my father was 47. So my father was shot in the face by a teenager with a handgun. And never regained consciousness and passed away 16 days later. And the world, as I knew it, ended that day, May 28th, 1971. So about 10 years ago, as I approached my 47th birthday, I just felt a wind or the spirit kind of beckoning me to just stop, to stop and notice the impact that my father's life and death had had on my life. And so I began writing in my journal and some paintings happened and some poems just emerged. And in my 47th year, I really stopped a lot of my life to go back and revisit and remember my childhood and just how my life had been impacted by that devastating experience. So I went to where he was shot in Washington, D.C., for example. I went to my childhood home. I just really spent time doing this, and I shared a bit about this journey I was on in my 47th year with a friend of mine. She invited me to her class uh, on healing work uh, to share my story. I shared my story, and it just brought up, you know, a lot of Um, deep emotions for everyone in the class, grieving or just remembrances of special moments in people's lives. The class ended and everyone left. And she turned to me and said, you have to write a book. 
And that was the start of writing the book. I mean, I, I answered her and I said, sure, thinking foolishly at the time, you know, thinking that, oh, half of it or more was already written. Little did I know that there was a lot more to come. So this, and, and this happened when you were 14, just a young teenager. What, what was it that happened? Was it really, was it a robbery or a random kind of senseless violence? Or what was it that, that happened? At the time, we were told that there were five eyewitnesses. So I went to where he was shot on the anniversary of, you know, the moment he was shot. It was 1.30 in the afternoon. And I spent some time um, there and I talked to someone who was with him shortly, minutes before he was shot. And it was as you can imagine, it was a very emotional time. When I got home that that day, that afternoon, um, a friend of mine, Joel, had downloaded five newspaper articles about the day that it really informed me more about what had happened because I, I didn't go to the trial. I, some of my father's friends did, but you know, again, I was 14, so I, I just didn't quite remember details. I, actually, I don't think they told me details at the time, but so... There is actually a, one of the newspaper articles. I was particularly moved by it, and it, it's in the book. The lead witness for the prosecution was a 16-year-old girl. And so she, she testified about what happened, and the, the, basically the judge dropped the robbery charges, and they were found guilty. It was a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old were found guilty of second degree, so unpremeditated murder. So it seemed like they wanted him to maybe purchase a, a gun that they were selling or – it's not clear. But he, he pushed them down and he ran. And that, that I did know many years prior to the book. But – so as he was running, he turned around to, I suppose, to look, you know, to see if they were following him. And it was at that moment that they shot him in the face. Uh, so these were just strangers on the street who uh, approached him. Absolutely. I mean, there's more detail in the book, but it was he he was in the insurance business and he was collecting premiums that day. So he had knocked on the door of this particular home and told uh, this the young woman that that her mother said to come by so he could get the check, and her mother wasn't there, so he left, and he walked away. And so the two uh, teenagers that were uh, found guilty of of killing him were in the house at the time, and so they immediately followed him, and then approached him, and there was a tussle. The newspaper article talks about a tussle, so it's not really clear what happened. Mm. So as a 14-year-old girl, just one day your father is away at work, and then the next thing you know, you hear that he's, he's in the hospital and he's been shot. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was my first experience with having difficulty or just actually not being able to believe reality. He was, I don't talk about this in the book, but he was the only person in my family that I liked and I felt some safety with him, but he was in intensive care. Well, he was in intensive care the whole 16 days, but his first three days in intensive care, his face was completely covered in bandages. So I still couldn't tell it was him. And so I waited 
for him to just come through the door, you know, just waited for him to, when he was in surgery, he had about eight hours of emergency brain surgery. We got there probably six hours into the eight hour brain surgery. But, you know, I just remember thinking, oh, he's going to just walk through the door and say, oh, it's been a terrible mistake. Let's go home. You know, so I was 14 and I couldn't, could not believe, I'm going to get emotional. I just couldn't believe that it was happening. It was just, it was very painful. So it, you know, it was the most painful time of my life, that time from 14 to to 17, because 18 months after his murder, I was put in a mental institution and labeled with schizophrenia. And, you know, it's like, (laughs) gee, Um, I just, I don't know that anyone put those pieces together very well. They weren't really thinking that the experiences that were, they were calling schizophrenia actually were directly resulting from this trauma, even though you just said that separating yourself from reality was one of the ways that you responded to this horrific thing that, that happened. It was just, yeah, there was a, I struggled with, you know, again, I was four, I was 14 and a half. So I did struggle with believing it, but eventually he was in the coma for 16 days. So, you know, the fourth day the bandage came off and I came to understand that this was really happening, but it was, it was extremely uh, stressful and, and difficult. But in any case, you know, life went on. So I was in ninth grade when it happened. It was in May. So summer vacation. I went back to school. You know, I just continued living, you know, getting back into the routine of day-to-day living, you know, learning how to put one foot in front of the other and doing reasonably well, I suppose. And on my 16th birthday, it was wonderful. I actually climbed a mountain and fell in love on top of the mountain and I was feeling really good. (laughs) And, um, one evening, I felt a presence. I basically felt like God chose me for a task that meant risking my life. I was trying to, you know, thoughts started racing, and I, every cell in my body was alive, and I was trying to understand... Um, what was going on. I was in love and things were confusing, but suddenly I felt God had chosen me. So you felt this, this presence of, of God. How did you know? Was it something in your body? Were you hearing something or were you alone when this happened? Or I had been spending a lot of time alone around um, my 16th birthday and soon afterwards. My mother was you know, a 40-year-old widow. She, In fact, she had a boyfriend. So her attention was really on other things. But this one evening before I went into the mental institution, I just, for the first time in my life, felt a very deep spiritual connection. I didn't grow up particularly practicing any religion. With my father's brutal murder, I thought if there was a God, I don't believe in him because the pain was too great. So I had really 
disconnected from any belief in a god and but this particular night before i went into the was put in the hospital i just god came at me full force and i could feel you know racing thoughts i had what was labeled delusions and hallucinations you know suddenly i felt chosen by god or a higher power to clean up the streets of murderers and drug dealers and i felt like i needed to you know, get to the president, President Nixon at the time, so I could be part of community building and making the streets safer and just was overwhelmed with really what it came down to is being overwhelmed with feeling oneness with the universe. And at the time, I didn't have resource to navigate that space. What was the response of the people around you? Did you talk with your mother about this, what was happening? Were you very excited and talking really fast and your personality had changed? Or or what happened after you had this presence of God come to you? This presence came very suddenly. It was basically within a three-hour time period because I remember that evening. The intensity was just increasing and increasing and increasing. And finally, I said, okay, I need to go home because I had been walking around the neighborhood and I uh, went home and I I told my mother that I needed to get to the president so that I could help him understand the need to clean up the streets from the violence, from the drug dealers, and maybe my story of my father's murder would help. And so the next morning, she took me to see a psychiatrist, and he said, go directly to the hospital. So I went directly to... At that point, it was just the general hospital and was admitted immediately to the psych unit. So what had been exciting, you know, I was in love for the first time in my life at 16. I mean, if you don't know love, you don't know what you're missing. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm hit with this. I'm head over heels and my body's becoming alive and I'm excited but anxious. So this great energy suddenly became very dark and very scary when I was admitted to the mental institution because they put me on you know, antipsychotics and I was locked up and I couldn't go outside. And so it became very scary. And I was mostly with adults, many of whom were getting electroshock treatment. So it was pretty terrifying. So you were feeling really happy. You were feeling positive and you weren't frightened or anything. It was really the people around you that became frightened. Absolutely. I mean, I was feeling really good. I was feeling powerful for the first time in my life. I felt this incredible oneness with the universe with people, with plants, with animals, I was overwhelming with this extraordinary sense of awareness and being. And absolutely, people around me, particularly, well, my mother and then people in the mental institution, I don't think they had a clue. So you weren't doing anything dangerous or self-destructive or talking about suicidal feelings or anything? Not at that point, not at the point when I was admitted to the mental institution. I think, because I was put in seclusion after about two months or so, and I remember thinking I must have said something that led them to putting me in there. So I, I was just struggling. They were putting me on higher and higher doses of antipsychotics, uh, stelazine, thorazine at the time, and melaril. Nothing was working. So the doses were getting higher and higher, and I I lost my vision. Basically, I couldn't read because my vision was so blurry. And so I think I must have said something about how difficult it was, and I was struggling, that led them to put me in the seclusion room. I did not trust the authorities, okay? When I first went into the 
the hospital, I decided to share with a staff person a little bit about what was going on with me, that I was, I was in communication with God, God was speaking to me, and sometimes through the radio or through the TV, and I thought, let me share just a little bit and see the reaction. So I told this one psych tech a little bit about what was going on. She immediately mentioned it to another psych tech, and both of them were laughing at me. Wow. And I felt so humiliated that I decided I couldn't trust any of these authority figures, you know, that were in the mental institution. And I became quite silent. I think they could see that I was struggling. I was absolutely in an incredible, the worst nightmare I could imagine, you know, in anyone's life. Basically, the message from God to me was that I was asked to do a task. And doing it meant risking my life. But when God asks you to do a task, it's not like you say, sorry, no thanks, find somebody else. And for me, being put in a mental institution, locked up, high doses of antipsychotics was part of the test I needed to get through to accomplish my goal. So I just wanted to get out of there. I was, play I was trying to play the game. And I probably told them I felt like my head was going to burst. I was processing unimaginable amounts of information. It's like every movement, every smile, every everything that happened. If someone yawned next to me, everything meant something. And it was overwhelming. It could have brought disaster. It could have meant that my mother would die instantly in a car accident. I couldn't filter out all the stimulation that was coming out at coming at me. So my mind was racing. I wasn't sleeping very much. Um, the sleeping medication they gave me helped because, hey, I needed to sleep. <laughs> but it was hard to sleep with my mind racing. And then I would get headaches, which I never get headaches, but I got headaches when at 16 when I was, when I was locked up. So I think this culmination of what they were seeing uh, led to them putting me back in the seclusion room. This was a very terrifying time of my life. One thing I saw that I, I just hardly have words for it was I saw someone, I was walking by the door when someone was getting shock treatment. So when I happened to walk by and the door was open because uh, staff were walking, they were like exiting or entering. So I saw this man, this man's body elevated off the gurney because at that moment he was receiving his voltage. So these were, it was really, really scary. It must have been horrifying for a 17-year-old girl who's alone, who's alone in there with all these adults to be seeing these things happening. It was absolutely the most horrif horrifying thing I could imagine. I prayed that I wasn't going to be on that gurney tied down like that man was. So most of the other patients in the, the mental institution were adults. I was the youngest person by far. I was fighting for my life. And I didn't trust the staff because previously they had laughed at me and I felt humiliated. I felt like I was on a conveyor belt. The psychiatrist would come in and ask me, you know, how are you? And with a team of people and then disappear. So I thought, okay, you know, he's just going through the motions, he's well-intended, he's doing his job, but 
they don't know what's going on with me. And they're not even asking. I tell people today, and I absolutely believe this is true, that if someone had believed in me and had believed in my mind at the time of this breakthrough, you know, what they labeled as a nervous breakdown, but I came 25 years later to label as a spiritual breakthrough, if they had said, why did God choose you? Why now? How does it feel? If they had just believed in me, then that could have helped me get go from monologue where I was stuck, you know, into a dialogue. But that didn't happen. No one ever asked you about that. Why are you chosen or to talk about your experience more? No one ever asked anything about it. Did anybody ever talk with you or ask you about the connection between this experience you were going through and, and your father's death? No, I don't recall anyone ever asking me about it. And I found that confusing because why wouldn't they try and talk with me about it? He was just brutally murdered 16 months, a year and a half earlier, you know, and they didn't seem, they didn't talk to me about it. What were they saying was the reason that you had schizophrenia? You know, I don't recall them explaining a reason, but they did tell my mother and myself that I would be in the mental institution pretty much all of my life, that I needed to be on psychiatric drugs all my life, and basically there was no chance of really having a normal life outside of the hospital. And I couldn't really take that in. I, it was very frightening, but I think part of me didn't believe them. And actually, years later, my mother told me that she never believed them. So, Lauren, how did you end up finally getting out of the, of the hospital? After six or seven months of this racing thoughts, they started to quiet down. And I thought that I was just doing what society wanted me to do you know, to suppress what was labeled madness. So I, I'm sure I became more compliant. And you had been medicated that whole time with um, antipsychotic medications. Yes, absolutely. And did you continue to take the medications when you came out of the hospital or? Uh, no, I never wanted to be on the medications. There were a few times that I um, spit them out uh, and then they put me on the liquid medication, but I, I never liked putting chemicals in my body. So no, I stopped as soon as I got out. And for the next 20 years, I would say I was on and off uh, psychiatric medication, mostly off, but I tried to, you know, not take it if I didn't need it. I think there were, there were times, I remember the last time that I went on psychiatric medication, I was feeling depressed and I didn't understand why I was depressed. And so I took medication for about three weeks and that was all that was needed as far as I was concerned. And that was the last time I ever took psych meds. And that was uh, about 20 years ago. So when you came out of the hospital, were you thinking that this terrible tragedy had happened with your father and I really didn't get a chance to get any help with that and now I need to get help? Or was it more something that just was pushed away and, and buried and then you went on with your life? I pushed it away and tried to bury it away. That seemed to be what society was telling me I needed to do. And so I suppressed a lot of what happened to me, including the amazing connection I felt with God and this oneness with the universe. I suppressed a lot of it, and I was just wanting 
to get out of prison. And then what, what happened? I went to a new, a new uh, public high school. And my school counselor promised that he wouldn't share my secret, you know, that I was coming out of the loony bin. You know, many messages I got, however nuanced, was that I should basically erase this part of my existence, you know, like it was shameful and horrible. So um, I remember in psychology class, this is high school, so this is my last year of high school, we were reading I Never Promised You a Rose Garden didn't tell anyone about my experience, my diagnosis. That's an autobiographical novel about a, a girl that's diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yes. And I thought, okay, so here I am back in high school, a new high school. I didn't know people. And we're reading about someone whose story is very similar to my own. And it was a little twilight zony. You know, it was a little like, oh my God, you know, I am like that person, but here we are in psychology class discussing this sick individual. And it just reinforced my need to stay hidden. And much of my life until I came out publicly as a psychiatric survivor, it felt like I was living a lie. Long before I came out publicly, I built a strong network of support around me that included psychiatric survivors and other people that you know had some understanding of human liberation and the impact of various forms of oppression on um, on us. I mean, I love watching young children um, because for me, that's what human liberation is about. It's remembering when I was young and I felt full of energy and zest and I felt alive and creative. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Lauren Spiro. She's a longtime psychiatric survivor activist who was diagnosed with chronic, undifferentiated schizophrenia at age 17. She has a master's degree in clinical community psychology and 25 years experience working in community mental health agencies. She is currently co-director of Emotional CPR and director of the National Coalition for Mental Health Recovery. She's the author of the new book, Living for Two, A Daughter's Journey from Grief and Madness to Forgiveness and Peace. And so how did you make that decision to come out as a psychiatric survivor? I became more aware of what happened to me and coming to understand myself better really fueled my ability to not only come out publicly as a psychiatric survivor, but to write the book and you know, just be more transparent and honest and genuine about my life and my thinking. I remember watching a video. My parents took a lot of films of us when we were, we were very young. In this particular film, I was 10 months old. And my mother, my father, my grandmother, I had close-ups of them on the film. My grandfather was, was taking it. Now, these were all people who had passed away many, many years ago when I saw the movie, and I could just see the love that was just emanating, just the joy and the love. And these are close-ups of my mother, my father, my grandmother. They were throwing someone up and catching them in the air. But what I was focused on was the incredible sense of love and joy that they were having while they were doing this. And then the camera zoomed up on my face, so it was me they were tossing in the air and catching and tossing, you know, repeatedly. And the look on my face was one of absolute terror. Like, what the heck are you doing to me? I was 10 months young 
And so for me, it really was an exquisite example of how mental health oppression, of how this thought pattern got laid in. What's wrong with you? I know my parents, my family loved me. I have no question about that, that they loved me as best they could. But I never felt seen and heard. And so this video, this memory of the video, because I don't, I don't remember this event actually happening, but I have it on film. The message that I internalized was, what's wrong with you? And I'm sure they thought if they did this long enough to me that I would eventually start having fun. But that's not what was seen in the video. What an extraordinary image. So you're watching a video of people in your family who are just in total joy and they're playing a game. They're like throwing you up in the air. You're a 10 months old girl, but you're an absolute abject terror and they keep doing it, thinking that there's something wrong with you, that this is a game. We're having fun. We're all happy. You should be the one who needs to change here. You need to start just being happy rather than being in terror. It's an incredible image of oppression of of exactly what you're saying. It's an incredible image of just a disconnect and saying that this is what you should be thinking and feeling rather than what you are authentically thinking and feeling. What a powerful symbol of that. For me, it was such an exquisite example of mental health oppression, how I internalized the messages, which were, you know, what was wrong with me. And so many years later, okay, at 16 and 17, when I get this diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia, it was like, oh, okay, that's right. Something's wrong with me. Well, that's the message I got all my life, particularly from my mother. You know, what's wrong with you? You have a bad attitude. You should be happy. So it made sense that I had internalized this way of thinking that something was wrong with me. So something that was happening at a very, very early age in your family, which is repeated throughout society, gets really kind of reinforced with the psychiatric diagnosis that the problem is inside of you. You need to be feeling and thinking and expressing in a different way than you are. Therefore, there's something wrong with you. Exactly. And that's part of, for me, the most damaging part of the psychiatric label, um, which for me, of course, it was, we've mentioned is the chronic schizophrenia, was this confirmation of society that it's my fault, that something's wrong with my brain. When I look back at my whole mental institution story, that was really the most damaging aspect of it was this labeling And then the internalization is that I come to believe the label. That's very powerful. It really resonates with my own experience because if I think about all the different kinds of harm and abuse and the scars that being in the mental health system affected me, really the most difficult and the most damaging was this this sense of not being able to trust my inner reality and that image of a terrified girl being thrown up in the air by happy, joyful adults and then thinking that there's something wrong with her because she needs to not be terrified it's going to leave that little girl with that message of, well, you can't really know what you're really thinking or feeling at any moment. And I think that was the thing that was most difficult in my own recovery was coming out of the psychiatric system and saying, well, actually, the only way I'm going to be able to live in the world and be who I want to be is if I start to trust and believe what's inside of me, if I start to really connect 
once again and go against all those messages of no, 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 you can't trust what's inside of you. Something's wrong with you. We, we on the outside, we're the, really the ones who have the truth about what you're going through. You can't really trust inside of yourself. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a very, very common thing that happens to so many of us. We lose our capacity to kind of really follow our inner world and our inner truth. And we end up being compliant and end up suppressing ourselves and how we really feel and think. And we end up kind of going along with different kinds of um, expectations that we're surrounded by. And so much of my life was trying to be good and quiet and conform to how I was supposed to be, you know, this social conditioning. So my own liberation story is very much about coming to understand some of the different forms of oppression and their impact on me so that I could then be free from that impact. So I look back at my childhood at adultism the power that adults yield over children. Don't cry, don't touch this, don't do that, don't fidget. And adultism gets carried on by the first institution many of us come in contact with, the school system. So part of my journey, which I talk about in the book, it's just going back and reclaiming that zestful and alive and beautiful, precious child that was brilliant. And I think we're all basically, you know, creative and 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 brilliant and these human qualities become extinguished at least they did for me until i went back to reclaim that young person and what was the turning point for you when did you start to do that process of reclaiming and really finding out who you are authentically emotionally rather than just going along with the pressures around you so I had been searching for meaning and purpose in my life. I felt like there was an emptiness in my soul and I didn't know how to fill it. I had been a therapist supporting other people to find happiness, but it still eluded me. So at some point you were able to really free yourself of this pattern that you've been living with of, of really denying your emotions and really suppressing who you really were. And then you started to believe in yourself. You know, I did finally start believing in myself, Will, but it took me many years actually to free myself enough to get to the point of working on believing in myself. And it really started with the notion that I was completely good because I never felt like I was good. So it contradicted the belief that I held that I was just bad and not worthy and I was going through the motions of living. So eventually I came to believe that as hard as it was, I used to just have massive crying sessions because it was such a contradiction to say, I'm completely intelligent, I'm completely good and try and breathe that into my every cell in my body. So after doing that for a few years, I did come to start believing in myself. But that's all been part of my liberation journey. And writing the book was also unexpectedly, writing the book became part of my liberation journey. I didn't know the power of writing my story down. 
And part of this too for you has been going back and reclaiming some of the spiritual experience that you went through. I mean, you were basically taught that this idea that you had a special destiny and a mission and that it was your job to um, try and change the world, that all this was a symptom of mental illness. And now you said you described that more as a spiritual breakthrough. Tell us about how you made that transition and how you see that spiritual aspect of what you went through today. I'm looking for the words because sometimes words don't come to me very easily. I'd rather dance it or paint it. <laughs> it became very clear to me over decades that what was labeled as madness was in fact a vision and that miraculously enough, amazingly enough, at 16, I think my mind was holding out for me what my spirit wanted my life to become about. And of course, I didn't recognize it at the time and no one recognized it at the time. But, you know, the visions I had at 16 are basically what I'm doing today. So my job today with the National Coalition for Mental Health Recovery is about reaching the president. And we are reaching the president. We are in meetings at the White House discussing policy so it's only in hindsight, I look back and say, wow, was that possible that at 16 that I had this vision that now is coming true? And the answer for me is that yes, that dreams do come true, that visions do come true. And my life, for me anyway, is a testament to that. Beautiful. What is it inside of you that allowed you to hold on to that throughout your whole life, even though at every step it's been turned into just a symptom of a mental illness? What is it that really gave you the strength to, to carry through with that vision? I spent most of my childhood, most of the first 25 years or so of my life, feeling an emptiness. And I didn't know why I was alive. I didn't know why I was wasting oxygen. And I remember the night I spent in the seclusion room when I felt like my life was being extinguished, that I was being killed. But there was a flame, a courageous flame that I was so determined to put every ounce of energy I had into finding a life worth living. So I, I just don't know why I'm here other than to do something useful. Today, my work is far beyond trying to change the mental health system. I'm getting very bold in my courage. So I will say that I do want to change the world. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't want a peaceful world, a loving world? So part of my journey was about five and a half years ago, we, Dan Fisher and myself, we created Emotional CPR, which teaches people how to assist and support others through an emotional crisis. It's been my great honor to, to train in, in emotional CPR and to become a trainer. And I was actually one of the people who contributed a little bit to developing it in the early stages. And it's an incredible tool that communities can learn. Individuals can learn some really basic skills to help people who are in emotional distress of some kind. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what emotional CPR is and how it works? Many of us are familiar with CPR, which helps people through a cardiac crisis. So eCPR was to help people through an emotional crisis. So CPR, the C represents connecting. The P 
represents empowerment and the R represents revitalization. So consistent with my experience and the experience of, gosh, hundreds if not thousands of people I know who went through emotional crisis, when I was in crisis, uh, I was stuck in monologue. And so having someone listen very deeply is about connecting. It's about believing in the person. It's about being there for the person. So when I feel that someone is there for me and listening, I feel connected and I'm able to tap into my power and remember that I have agency. I can make decisions. So that's the empowerment piece of it, that when we know someone's there, some caring person is right there by our side supporting us, we can move into you know, feeling connected and then move into feeling empowered. And then as we feel empowered and we're getting more comfortable with, yes, I can think well, I can make decisions, then we move into that. I think of it as the life force, the chi is about revitalization, that I'm then able to go back into community and perhaps change, perhaps not change routines, roles, relationships, but it's getting back into that flow of life. And ECPR is an alternative to something that's also being offered around the country called mental health first aid. How does it compare in your view? What are your thoughts about how emotional CPR is actually a better way to respond to people? Emotional CPR is actually primary prevention which is the most cost-effective form of healthcare. So when, if we learn eCPR as a culture, like we've learned CPR, then we can support people and prevent the individual going into crisis. So when people feel supported, when they feel like they have a place to go that's safe, whether it's an individual or a community center or wherever it is, a family, we can prevent the emotions from escalating and getting bigger and then overflowing into crisis. So it's very different in that sense in that it's primary prevention. But if we come in a little bit later and the person is in crisis, then it is a way to basically connect and de-escalate. We've been working with law enforcement. We have a number of law enforcement officers that understand eCPR. They understand that if they go into a crisis situation because they're called, you know, 911, someone's calling for help because it's a crisis. So law enforcement goes in to manage a crisis. But when they go in, and I love these officers because they, they teach me, when they go in, they need to understand that it's not about the badge and the baton and the gun and the power. But when they go in with an understanding that listening and connecting with this human being who's in crisis, whether they have a weapon in their hand or not, if they can connect and be present and listen to the person and help them feel that there's another human mind there working to resolve this quote unquote crisis, then we have a much greater chance of positive outcomes that the person will feel that there's another option other than violence or, you know, some desperate move that they unfortunately often end up taking because that support is not there. Yeah, this was what really drew me to emotional CPR is that it's a way of, of meeting people in crisis, of engaging with people in crisis that actually comes from the wisdom of psychiatric survivors that comes from asking us, hey, what would help us? What would we have needed 
instead of what we got so often in hospitals and from police. And and when I was um, in the hospital, if I had just had someone who was really using those really basic skills of just connecting and noticing the relationship and being engaged in a kind of a presence with me, if I had had someone who was patient and had been more interested in dialogue than diagnosing me or controlling me or telling me what I needed or interpreting me or then or just saying, well, he's catatonic, he's not communicating, forget it, we're just going to you know, see him as this other sick person. If I had had people around me to really be using those skills that go into emotional CPR, it might have really made a huge difference for me. It might have really changed some of the direction of my life. So I think of eCPR as simple, but it's not easy because it means listening very deeply, which means letting go of labels and judgments and our really all of our social conditioning and just bringing our deepest wisdom to the present moment, to that person in crisis. I had a great honor, actually, of speaking with Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, a, a few months ago after he gave a talk uh, here in D.C. And we were talking about eCPR. And I just at one point, I'll remember this all of my life, he just looked deep into my eyes and he said, we're in the same line of work. We are peacemakers. And so that inspired me to think more about eCPR as a tool of peacemaking. And I became very aware of how inner peace creates global peace. I think that's a beautiful vision of eCPR and working with people around emotional distress as a form of peacemaking. And tell us about your own process of learning and discovering around the tragedy with the murder of, of your father and what you've learned now looking back on that. I learned, and I think others learn this as well, I learned to separate from myself as a way of surviving in the world, of getting hard and tough and cold in order to survive. And when I have that foundation of separation from my own self, and then it's followed by separation from others, particularly people who look different than me, maybe speak a different language, however... I feel like a lot of my life, a lot of our culture is built on this belief that we are something and that thing is separate from each other. And we get focused on protecting that thing, whatever the thing is, territory, home, family members, and we hold on to it with fear and anger and revenge. And we wait for someone else to do something differently so that we think we can find peace. When I find that peaceful place in my being where I go back to that oneness with the universe I experienced at 16. When I am one with the universe and feeling at peace, then I can be with other people. And I think if a lot of us are in that space, we create peace, we end war because the war that is in our heads, the war that in my head gets projected, gets communicated to others. Part of my healing was understanding my own white racism. I didn't agree to be racist. It was installed from the outside, and it left me damaged, as in the case with all people in oppressor roles. My work on forgiveness began when I, I started working on resentment and letting go of, releasing resentment so that I could love my mother, for example. So how could I forgive James and William 
for killing my father. How could I not? So coming to understand the fragility of humanity and of myself, using my own life as my my best model, I've just learned a lot about forgiveness. And that when I can deeply forgive, and I'm still working on this, okay, I'm not like all the way there. But when I can go into that space of forgiveness, all there is is love and acceptance and respect and understanding. Each and every one of us, myself included, do the best we can at every moment. And we've all been hurt. We've all been oppressed. And I want so much to create loving and forgiving and strong, healthy communities. And so we have ECPR. If my book can contribute, you know, anything to this dialogue, I'm happy to have written it. So, Lauren, we are just about out of time. So remind us about the title of your book and how people can get a copy and how they can get in touch with you. The book is Living for Two, A Daughter's Journey from Grief and Madness to Forgiveness and Peace. And it's published by Trafford. My website is www.laurenspiro.com, L-A-U-R-E-N-S-P-I-R-O.com. Lauren Spiro, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Lauren Spiro. She's a longtime psychiatric survivor activist who's diagnosed with chronic undifferentiated schizophrenia at age 17. She has a master's degree in clinical community psychology and 25 years experience working in community mental health agencies. She's currently co-director of Emotional CPR. Lauren is the author of the recent book, Living for Two, A Daughter's Journey from Grief and Madness to Forgiveness and Peace. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.